Hi, this is Nathan Owens from the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse in Antigua. Every Tuesday evening at 7.30, we have a live call-in program discussing real-life issues from the Caribbean. Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. You're listening to That's Truth, a live call-in program with Dr. David Murphy, designed to answer your questions biblically in this confusing culture. Dr. Murphy has over 30 years of counseling and ministry experience here in the Caribbean and is ready to answer your questions according to truth. Good evening and welcome to another episode of That's Truth here on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. I'm Nathan Owens and sitting across the desk from me as usual is Pastor Murphy. Good evening, Pastor. Good evening, Brother Nathan, and good evening to those who are listening to the program. Thank you so much for allowing us to come into your home this evening. As we start off tonight's episode, we are going to go to a question that Brother Williams asked a couple of weeks ago. And it is in relation to Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Pastor, can you please explain those? Yeah, I would like to, to um, look at those verses because um, Brother Williams has requested this. And we started last week and then we got a phone call and we had to somewhat interrupt the program. Um, Revelations 3, 1 to 7 is the message to the Church of Sardis. Um the word Sardis itself means escaping, and this is the fifth of the seven churches that is addressed in the book of Revelation. I mentioned that while these seven churches mentioned in Revelations 2 and 3 uh, were local churches in the sense that they existed in a kind of a semicircle from coming from the east, north, uh, west, north, east, and then back south, um, it has been... Um, discovered, should I say, that when they started studying church history and comparing the seven different stages of church history, it became clear that there's a parallel between what was in these seven churches and what were the norms in in those periods of church history. So it's generally believed that these were not only seven um, churches in Asia Minor, but that these are seven churches that carried a prophetic message that outlined uh, in a panoramic form the entire scope of church history from the first century of the apostolic age right down to the Laodicean age, which is the apostate stage in which we are currently in. So these seven churches speak of these seven church epochs or eras that uh, church historians have identified, and that's what became the key to understanding this passage. passage. Uh, It was only after church history was written and the parallel was seen that they begin to understand this is more than just uh, literal churches. These are a prophetic profile of of church history. Um, This particular church that is mentioned um, here in uh, in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7, which is the fifth church, uh, the church of Sardis, and the word uh, the word Sardis means those escaping, is generally considered to be the the Reformation period. Now, this is shocking because when you get the description that you find in this passage, you find it difficult to associate because one thing the Lord says to this church, you're dead, 
right? He commends them for certain things, but then he said, you're dead. How did you get to this condition? I'd just like to give you the seven uh, church of church history. Uh, the apostolic age covered from 30 AD uh, to 100 AD, and this is the church of Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. After the apostolic age, you had the persecuted church, which goes from 100 to 313, which is the church of Smyrna, which means bitter, from uh, Revelations 2, 8 to 11. And of course, in 313 is when the church was now recognized as the official church of the Roman Empire. It was no longer persecuted, and the person responsible for that, of course, was, was Constantine. So uh, from 313 until 600, it's called the Constantinian, uh, the, the Constantinian area. This is when the church became married to the to, uh, to the government, and there was no distinction between the church and the state. And that covered the period three thirteen to six hundred, and that is called the Pergamus stage. That goes from uh, Revelations two twelve to seventeen, and then now following that, we go into the Dark Ages, which is the Tyre Tyre Church, Revelations two eighteen to twenty nine, and this goes from the period of six hundred eighty to fifteen seventeen when Luther. Um, wrote his 95 Theses and pinned it to the door of the Wittenberg Church in Germany and brought about the Protestant Reformation. And then following that, and that is the Sardis Church, uh, which we which you're referring to here in the um, Revelations 3, 1 to 7. We'll come back to it and we'll expound it in just a moment. Following the Reformation, you had the Great Missionary Period, which goes from 1648 to the 1900. It's called the Church of Philadelphia. That goes from Revelations 3, 7 to 12. But that's when you got the expansionist missionary movement that became global. And then finally, you have the Laodicean Church, Revelations 3, 13 to 22, which is called the Apostate Era. That goes from the 19th century to the present. And that's when the church started uh, being undermined through German higher criticism in Europe and then also the introduction of the evolutionary theory. It was during this period that the church really apostatized and went away from the faith. And that's when fundamentalism was a reaction to this apostasy, and they called people back to the Bible. Now, having given you that information, we now need to probably look at uh, the passage itself, Revelation 3, 1 to 7. Uh, I would like to say this as well. In most of these messages to these seven churches, there um, it's really about six elements that are very common to all of them. First of all, uh, you have the destination. It tells you where the church is. Then you give a description of Christ, how that description relates to the condition of the church. Then there's some commendation uh, about what the Lord sees that is favorable within the church. Then this is followed by um, some condemnation where he actually condemns them for something going on in the church that is not acceptable. Then there's an exhortation. And it ends with, with a promise. Now, it's interesting that in these seven churches, uh, the Lord finds um, only two of them that he says nothing against. There's no negative comment on, on two of them. But against five of them, um, he expresses strong uh, condemnation of practices going on in the church. The other thing is interesting is this. He finds something good in six of the churches there's only one church he finds nothing good in, and that's the last church, the Laodicean church, the era in which we are living. And you will see, uh, if you study that section, why. Uh, but Sardis, let's deal with Sardis so we can explain uh, what is going on there in Sardis. You would like to read it for me, Nathan? Yeah, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 7, if you'd like to follow along in your own Bible. It's I, a, will, I will interrupt you as you go on. Okay. okay. 
says, And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Yeah, let's stop there for just a moment. Notice the description of Christ uh, in relation to the church. He's the one that has the seven spirits. Now, in, in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 to 5, you'll find that the Holy Spirit is described in a sevenfold way. And it is believed uh, that that's how you explain. Remember that Revelation is a book of symbols. And you'll find that a lamb is used as a symbol of Christ, a lamb that is slain. Uh, you find that the beast is described as a, uh, the Antichrist of the beast. The Holy Spirit uh, here is described as seven spirits. You'll also find in Revelation 5, 6, he's described as seven eyes. But, uh, but the whole purpose here is that this is talking about the sevenfold nature of the Holy Spirit, which you'll find in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2 to 5. And then, of course, the seven stars are explained to us in Revelations one twenty. We're told that the seven stars are the seven messengers or leaders in the, within the church that our Lord addresses. Go ahead. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and art dead. Again, the Protestant Reformation, when you think of the Protestant Reformation, this period, I mean, is seen as a great period in church history. There's no question about that. And the greatness of this uh, Reformation period is that it actually resolved a lot of the doctrinal errors uh, that were uh, being put um, propagated within the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, it actually was a, 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 a movement that went against the great Catholic doctrines that the church held. And it brought the churches back to the biblical salvation. Salvation was, was the doctrine of salvation was lost because within the Roman Catholic Church, it's a salvation not of just faith, and faith alone is faith plus works. Uh, and then out of this Reformation came many of the great creeds within all of these great churches. So they had a name. There's no question about that. Even today, when you speak of the uh, the Reformation, there is an element of praise that it brought the church back to the great doctrine of salvation and was able to get all of these great uh, Christian creeds that a lot of these different denominations have. But then the Bible says you have a name, but you're what? You're dead. And the reason why that is so, Nathan, is because the Reformation never solved the real problem that the Church of Pergamos went into. The Church of Pergamos is the church when there was a marriage between the state and the church. The thing about the Reformation Church, they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, but they all became state churches. Uh, so they never, that is why a person, for example, Germany became Lutheran. Um, that is, um, Scotland became Presbyterian. Um, Switzerland became Reformed. Uh, England became Anglican. It was the same with the state like the Queen is the head of the Anglican Church, if you know that. So really, in truth and fact, they never saw, they never broke away far enough because the church became enmeshed with the state and the state became controlling of the church. So that's why, even though it was such a great movement in bringing back people to conversion and reading all these great creeds, they made the mistake of doing exactly what the problem was for the Church of Pergamos because the word Pergamos means marriage. That's when the church married to the state, and the state got control of the church, and there was a hard to distinguish the church from the state. Same thing happened with the with these, these churches that came with the Reformation. All of them went back and became state churches. So it meant now that when a person was born, say in Germany, he automatically was baptized as a Lutheran. There's no personal faith. There's no repentance. 
So what happened to church eventually became a big monstrosity, but the vast majority of those people had never known saving faith. They all were baptized, and they became the main body of the church. And uh, so you don't have any real vital spirituality because there's no repentance, there's no personal faith. That happened within all the major denominations that came with the Protestant Reformation because they became what? Became state churches. So when you were born in the country, automatically once you're baptized, you became a Lutheran, you became a Presbyterian, you became a Reform. Uh, you just became because you were born in the country. So there was no saving faith involved, and that's what happened to those churches. So the majority of members of those churches were people who were just merely baptized not truly authentically saved, not repentant, no personal faith whatsoever. And you can see why he would say, you have a name, but you're dead because there's no spiritual vitality there. Go on. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before Again, God. Again, it's a warning to that church during that period of time that you've got to be very, in other words, what is happening to you if you continue down this line is going to die. And he's calling upon them to be alert what is happening, uh, but in, 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 in not being alert, they followed in the same tracks as the Church of Pergamos. But here's a clear warning to the church that they're going in the wrong direction and vigilance is needed to avoid that. Otherwise, what you still have remaining that's good is just going to die. Okay, read the other section. Remember, therefore, how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. No, that's interesting. Uh, remember what you've heard. They had great doctrine, no question about that. I mean, you had Luther, you had Zwingli, you had uh, Calvin, uh, you had, um, in Scotland, um, John Knox. You had these great teachers and great preachers, and he's now calling upon them to remember what you heard, hold to what you heard, these great doctrines. But the church, instead of holding to these great doctrines, and and, etc., again, the mistake was, the marriage to the church, to the state, and soon doctrine is overshadowed because of the commitment to the state. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Again, he's warning them that he's going to visit them in judgment. And here is, by the way, it's to understand that in church history, all of these different stages of church history that are mentioned in Revelation continue to the end. So really, even though this church is the Church of the Reformation, those churches still continue. And he's saying that when he comes, uh, he's come very quickly. So this is still a continuation. Those churches still exist today, and he's going to come in judgment. This has to do with the, the rapture, of course. Okay. Uh, he's going to come. That was going to be my question, is yeah. whether that refers to the rapture. So, But the rapture obviously didn't happen during this time period. No, but remember, this is a prophetic of the entire church history. Okay. For example, there are still churches that are apostolic right. in their thinking. There are still churches that are still hold to the, 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 the Pergamos way of looking at the marriage of the state, etc. You still have missionary activity. So it doesn't mean that these seven churches didn't mean that they went up. There's not one, two, three. There's a continuation of this same type of churches until the end. That, that's what needs to be understood. Okay. But it's just that these particular churches, in, in, in each one of these, there's a distinct event going on in these churches that define that church period. So that's why it's used that way. Revelation chapter 3, verse 4 says, Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. Okay, but notice here that uh, there's still a remnant 
within these churches, and there's no question about it. In every single denomination I can think about, there's always a remnant group that remains true. Now, why they stay in these denominations that move so far is the great puzzle that I have, because the Bible is very clear you need to come out. But let's be very honest that there are people who loyalty uh, is sometimes nationalistic, loyalty is sometimes family, and they still remain in these uh, denominations in spite of the fact that the Bible tells you to come out of them. So you're still going to have a remnant within these churches that the Lord talks about. Uh, White Raymond, by the way, uh, if you check Revelation 7, 14, uh, if you want to just look, turn there for just a moment. Yeah, Revelation 7.14 says, And I said unto him, Sir, thou knowest. And he said to me, These are they which came out of the great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Yeah, so this is talking about the fact that these are safe people. In other words, they share in the redemption uh, because the white garments refers to the cleansing through the blood of Christ. So these are saved people. The other thing he tells them is what? They walk in white garments. Uh, in Ver- Revelation 3? Yeah, you will read in that. Revelation 3, 4 says, And they shall walk with me in white garments, for they are worthy. Okay, go ahead. Continue reading. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. That is eternal security. In other words, you can be very, very secure. You're not going to lose your salvation, as people often say. So this is really a teaching that not only are they going to be clothed in white, symbolizing their salvation and their redemption, which we find there in, in Revelation chapter 7, but also there's a guarantee, a surety, that there will be eternal security. The name will remain in the book of life. But I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. You remember Jesus said on one occasion on the Gospels, if you confess me before me, I will confess you before my Father in Heaven. This is actually a fulfillment of that. So these are people who clearly within these denominations that remain true and faithful. They are redeemed. They have the eternally secure. And clearly they are witnessing. They're sharing their faith. So those are the three promises that our Lord gives. Number one, uh, they will share in the redemption because they are saved. They'll be eternally secure. And, And then also the names will be confessed before the Father. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. And this is a warning to everybody, because all of these seven churches, you'll find that that's the same message given to the person who would read or would hear the the, uh, the teaching from Revelations 3 and 20, is that there is clear warning there for us. This is not just for the first century world. Uh, this is for every ch- uh, church uh, member in every church era, that we must listen to what the Spirit is saying, and we must uh, uh, learn from it, understand it, and uh, be careful that we don't go down this, this track, um, do the things that He commends, and avoid the things that He condemns. That's basically what we saying. And verse number 7 says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write these things. That's the next church. So that is basically interpretation of the passage. I just wanted Mr. Um, Williams to understand that, um, you know, our, our Lord is dealing with that period of time. And clearly, by the way, that has a message for us today because that same thing has happened uh, up to today, Nathan, that a lot of people are baptized become members of churches. There's no personal faith. There's no repentance. But the act of baptism is supposed to wash your original sin. So what you have in a lot of these established churches, that people are church members who are unregenerate. 
right? They fill the, 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 the church, but they don't have any experience of personal faith in Christ, and they haven't gone through that experience of repentance. So let me dwell on that for just a moment. You're talking about people who are religious, but for the individual who says, Pastor, I was baptized as a child, but now you're saying there's something else to having a personal relationship with Jesus. Can you explain that to me? Yeah, the, the, the fact, the mistake that people make, if you check what biblical baptism is, you believe and then you're baptized. Baptism follows belief. If I'm a baby, I have no understanding of who Christ is. I have no understanding. So what, what, what they're trying to do is to let the parent act as a surrogate to baptize a person. As a result of that, we're told they wash away original sins, and they're now Christians. And then when they get confirmed, the Holy Spirit is supposed to uh, take control, etc., etc. There's no biblical basis for that. And that's where the church has gone wrong. And that's why he said, you've got a name that you live, but you're dead. Because when you bring all of these people that have no personal faith in Christ, had no repentance, but you make them church members and they fill the church roles now uh, as believers, and you keep telling them the same thing again and again, your sins are washed away, you're a Christian, you're a Christian, you're a Christian. Some people actually come to believe that. You know, if you keep exposing people to anything for a length of time, it becomes normalized. And uh, that is what happened, for example, with the, the, the gay movement. The plan of the gay movement to make it normalized was to give it as much exposure, exposure, so people became desensitized. So get it on the television, get it on the radio, get it on the on the on the media, and as so people hearing it and hearing it and hearing it and hearing it again, you you become this like when person started listening to uh, movies, and they had the first curse word, bam, television was off. But then they want to watch a movie that everybody's talking about and it's loaded with, 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 with curse words. So what happened, you, you listen, uh, you watch it, and after a while, you don't even realize that they, they're curse words any longer because you become desensitized. That's exactly what happened with people when they're part of this, this thing. You get baptized, you're told you're saved, you're, you're going to the kingdom, you're part of the church, you're Christian, you're Christian. And you're told that for the time you're born until you turn 18, 19, 20, even in your 30s, your 40s, 50s. Imagine being told that so often. It is almost virtually not impossible to change that mindset and that thinking. The only thing that can change that is to go into the Word and ask myself one question. Who are to be baptized? And there's only one answer. Believe, those who believe are those who are baptized. So if I was baptized and I didn't believe, I didn't understand, my baptism is invalid. But that's a strong statement to make because there are a lot of people all over the Caribbean who are basing their entire conversion experience on the fact that they got baptized. And who told them that? The, the priest told them that. The pastor told them that. Somebody told them that. And that's what they're holding on to. So if, that, if that's not how I have a right relationship with God, then how do I have a right relationship? Well, the Scripture makes it quite clear that the only way to have a right relationship with God is through Jesus Christ, who is our mediator. And you've got to do two things. First of all, you've got to understand that the barrier between you and God that breaks that relationship is sin. So the sin problem has to be dealt with. I can never have a relationship with God until I face the fact that I'm a sinner and need forgiveness. And that's where we have to be willing to turn away from our sin, confess our sins, and get forgiveness. Now, after that happens, of course, we've now got to put the faith in the person who accomplished redemption for us. He 
paid the price for our sins. He paid our debt so that we could be saved. So I have to exercise faith, not in the church, Nathan, but in the finished work of Christ. Who he is and what he did is what I must put my faith in. <laughs> That's what's going to save me. That's why the Bible says he's the way, the truth, and life. No man comes to the Father except through him. He's the only name given unto heaven whereby we must be saved. Um, so it is a matter of repenting of my sin, putting my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And the other thing that is need to be said, Nathan, is when I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, not only does he take my sins, cleanse my sin, but the Bible says his righteousness is imputed to my account. So God sees me in the righteousness of Christ. I keep telling people that's one of the greatest doctrines I could ever think of that because of my, my problem is this, okay, I know my sins are forgiven, but I also know that I still sin. So how can a holy God then have a relationship with me? There's only one explanation. He sees me in Christ. He sees me in the perfect righteousness of Christ, and that enables him until the day that we are like Jesus without sin. God has this interim thing, as it were, to deal with me on a personal basis, even though I have a sinful nature and I had sinned, but He sees me in Christ. And that's why in the Scriptures, throughout the, the epistles, in Christ, in Him, in Christ, in Him, that's the great doctrine of imputed righteousness and that we are united to Him and we become one with Him. Do I have to be a church member to have a right relationship with God? No, you don't have to be a church member to have a right relationship. But if you are a believer in Christ, you would want to be part of the body of Christ. Remember, the church is not a human invention. I will build my church. So when God saves us, he doesn't save us to be a lone ranger. We must live in the context of fellowship. We were made for relationships, and we can grow only in relationship. And that's why it's important for a person after you're saved to be part of a body of believers so that iron sharpen of iron, and not only that, we have gifts that are given to us that are not for ourselves. It is for the, the, the greater good of the body of Christ. So we have to minister within the, the body of Christ and use our gift to that purpose. You're listening to That's Truth, a live interactive call-in program on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. It airs every Tuesday evening from 7.30 until 9 p.m. You can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. Again, call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 1-268-782-1454, or you can go to the Facebook page, Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and right there on your device while you listen to the program and watch in the studio behind the scenes, you can comment in the comment section and ask you our question. Yeah, Dathan, I want to make a comment here. You know, people get offended when you make statements like um, baptism doesn't save you as a bit when you got baptized. But again, all I'm asking people who listen to the program uh, is just church the scriptures. The only way you would know if you have a valid truth is if it, how it compares with scripture. And if the Bible makes it abundantly clear that only those who believe should be baptized. The, the the logical sequence of that is that a person who doesn't believe and who haven't repented, they should never be baptized. So I don't know where the why the problem uh, with people. I think the thing is that people are looking to the priest, they're looking to the pastor, looking to the bishop 
to establish their core doctrines and faith. That's not the way it's supposed to be. The Bible is the final authority. And a man or woman uh, who holds that position, whether priest or pastor, whatever, must only be followed as that person aligns their teaching with Scripture. If they're going contrary to Scripture, uh, they are not to be followed, not to be believed. The Bible is the final authority. And I'm asking people who listen to the program, who might think that we're harsh, you're criticizing this and so on. We, if we're going to speak truth, we've we got to take it to Scripture. And we can't compromise our position on these matters because if the Bible teaches it, that's where the truth is found. So all we're asking you, if you differ with what we're saying, um, give us a proof text. Show us anywhere in the, in the Scriptures where baptism would redeem anybody or where a child should be baptized. If you can find it once in Scripture, uh, share it with us. We'll discuss it on the radio. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.01. If you are listening to the rebroadcast on Saturday, you can also send us your question via WhatsApp or text message, and we will answer it the following Tuesday when we have the live episode. Again, WhatsApp or text your question to 268 782-1454. Brother Williams, thank you for sending in that question about Revelation or calling in about that question a couple of weeks back from Revelation chapter 3. And thanks for being patient as it took us a couple of weeks to get the full answer. Next question is from Deuteronomy chapter 28 and verse 68. And that verse says... And the Lord shall bring thee into Egypt again with ships. By the way whereof I spake unto thee, thou shalt see it no more again. And there ye shall be sold unto your enemies for bondmen and bondwomen, and no man shall buy you. Well, <clears throat> this is part of the uh, chapter 28 of Deuteronomy. is part of the blessings and the cursings. Where God is telling Israel, if you obey, these are the blessings. If you disobey, these are the consequences. And in this particular verse, he's warning them that if they go down the track of disobedience, um, they will be brought back into Egypt, and they will be uh, sold in Egypt. So much so, there'll be so many of them in Egypt that they would not even be purchasers uh, the text goes on to mention. Uh, this is a prophecy made in Deuteronomy chapter 28 and 26, but a prophecy that was not fulfilled until 70 AD. That is when Titus destroyed the Jews. And what he did after he destroyed Jerusalem, burnt Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, um, he transported the Jews. He took the ones that were above 17 years old and he sent them into the Roman Empire to work in public works, build the roads, do that kind of thing. But those who were under 17, he sent them in ships down uh, to Egypt. And there they were exported uh, as slaves in ships down to Egypt. And they were in such an abject circumstances that they glutted the market when they went down to uh, Egypt. According to Josephus, 30 of them were sold for a trifle, very little sum of money. They were sold, 30 uh, were sold that. Uh, not only that, the market was so overstocked uh, that sometimes those that had gone down at 17 and who had now had little children, even the entire family was sold uh, in Egypt. 
But Josephus makes it clear, clear that they were sold at the lowest price and they were in such an abject position that there were very few people then willing to purchase them because being brought back to Egypt, uh, um, the, tra- the travel in itself, and they became so emaciated that the the actual purchasers of slaves were rejecting them. And that's what God told them. I'll send you back to Egypt. Remember that they came out of Egypt walking and they were led into freedom. The Lord said, "Now listen. If you don't, if you disobey me, you don't live according to my law. I'm going to send you back, but you're not going to walk back to Egypt. I'm going to send you back in ships." And Titus did that. The other person that did that, uh, Nathan, is also Hadrian, was another Roman leader. Again, in his generation, again he himself uh, took the Jews and shipped them back down to Egypt. So this was fulfilled in the time of Titus and the time of Hadrian. It took about 3,000 years before God actually took them back down to Egypt. But that was done during the time of Titus. Very interesting. I can't say I've ever seen that verse in that context before. Yeah. Well, I don't think a lot of people is aware that it's actually there. Yeah. Right? And then um, the historical documentation of when it happened, uh, Josephus records it. There's another um, historian, I think, Hesoridius, uh, not sure I'm protecting his, his name, not Herodias, I know him, uh, but he's another historian who also recorded that. Uh, so Josephus and also uh, Jerome, okay. uh, he also recorded the, the fact that this is what happened to the Jews under Titus and under Hadrian. And Josephus was a secular historian, right? Yeah, he's a, he's a Jewish secular historian. He's not a Christian, not a Christian. So he wouldn't have made up this story in order to fit the scriptures. No, no. But not only that, I mean, I, I don't know the, the other documentation to that. The other the other person that I mentioned, the the, uh, the name, I thought I'd written it down. But he is not, um, he's just a secular historian. Uh, so the, the data is there to support the the, uh, the teaching. Now the reason why this is um, this came up, I, I suspect the reason why this verse came up. The black nationalists who claim that the black people are the Jews right. uh, claim that this refers to them. But again, at no time were the Africans out of uh, thing and then brought back into Egypt. So it makes no sense when they make this claim that this is referring to black Africans, right? Uh, I just mentioned that because uh, I have seen the verse mentioned before and in that context and I think the person might have heard the, the same thing and uh, probably was wondering if there's any truth to what was said about this particular verse. Were the Jews ever brought back in ships down into Egypt? The answer is yes. Historically, 70 AD during Titus' destruction of Jerusalem and also under the reign of Hadrian. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. We appreciate your interaction. You can ask your question by calling 268 462 7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. We have a question that has come in. Good evening, Pastor. Is prophesying the same as preaching? Um, There is an element of preaching to prophesying, but that does not give the totality of the meaning. For example, if you look at the prophets in the Old Testament, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you notice that they had a contemporary message for their times. They warned the people about their times, so that is the preaching. They preached to the people and warned them, but they also talk about the future. So there are two elements. There is the element where they preached the contemporary issues, is also the element where they were able to be to talk about 
future things to come. You find that both in Jeremiah and Isaiah. So it cannot be totally equated. So prophecy contains preaching, and it also contains prophetic word, two things, right? But you can't um, equate it as preaching, solely preaching. Uh, there's an element of, of the uh, futuristic aspect to it as well. And if you would like to hear more about that, the radio program that Pastor has, Sermons of Grace, is currently airing Pastor Murphy's series on spiritual gifts from Romans chapter 12 on Sunday evenings at 8.15 p.m. And if you go to the podcast, you can go to that by going to our website, radiolighthouse.org. Scroll down to the second large photo that you see. It's a broadcast microphone. Click on the circle right in the middle of the screen that says podcast. And then you can find sermons called Spiritual Gift of Prophecy, part one and part two. And those episodes will be pastor preaching through more detail on that topic. Time across the Eastern Caribbean on this Tuesday evening is 8.09. If you have a question, you can send it to us via WhatsApp or text message by sending it to 268-782-1454. Pastor, a question that we have here. Should there be deaconesses in our churches? Well, the only way to gain to decide whether or not this is an appropriate office for women is to go to the Bible itself and um, see what the Bible says. Now, one of the great principles of interpretation, if you can do proper hermeneutics, is what is called the first mention uh, mention principle. That is, whenever there's a doctrine mentioned, you see where it's first referenced. For example, sacrifice. The first sacrifice is in the book of Genesis. If you're going to understand what sacrifice is about, Genesis sets the stage for your understanding of a sacrifice. Um, if you're going to understand atonement, again, you look for the first reference of atonement in the Bible and see what that says, and that sets the stage for you to have a proper understanding. It's called the first mention principle. Now, if we apply that to the role of deacons, uh, it will take us to Acts chapter 6, verse 1 to 6. This is the first time we have reference to this word uh, uh, deacon, which is the word um, diaconis. Um, that word um, is found there in Acts chapter 6. And if you are familiar with the passage, I don't know, Nathan, maybe you can read it 1 to 6. Yeah, Acts 6, 1 to 6 says, And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied, There arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily menstruation. Then the twelve called the multitude of the disciples unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over this business, over his business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and 
Parneamus and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and the great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. Okay, you've got the historical setting for the uh, creation of the, the office of, of deacons there, uh, and clearly it was an emergency situation where the church is having some problems. Uh, you've got all Jews, but you've got them two different ethnic groups of Jews. One are Hebrews who were brought up in Palestine and spoke Hebrew, and no doubt would have spoken Greek as well because that was the lingua franca of the period of time. And then you've got these Grecian Jews who were living in different parts of the Greek world and learn Greek language and, and um, absorb Greek culture, and now they're back in Jerusalem. You've got these two groups now converted in the church, and they feel that nepotism is going on, that, you know, the Hebrews are taking care of the Hebrew widows, but they're neglecting the Grecian widows, etc. So there was a, a clash, co- confusion, conflict. And to resolve the conflict, the disciples decided that, well, look, we need to solve this problem because it's a distraction to us. Our primary task is prayer and, and the Word. Uh, if we have to get involved in this commerce that's going on, uh, we become distracted and we'll surrender our time of prayer and the Word. So we've got to find uh, someone or persons who can actually deal with this problem. So it is very clear that the deacon role is one of mercy and ministry uh, to the needs of the congregation. That's the, that's the first thing we've got to understand. So when we understand deacon's role, you've got to understand that that is, that is supposed to be their, their, their main role. Uh, the other thing is that in selecting who to um, become persons who would be in charge of this ministry. Now remember, this is a, this is a woman's problem. This is a widow's problem. This is Grecian widows and this is uh, Hebrew widows. So the question would be, if we had to solve that problem, we would put a woman in place. But it's very significant that even though there's a problem between all these women, all this problem going on, they said to the congregation, you choose seven what? Read up verse 3. Verse 3 says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom ye may appoint over so this. So this is a male's road. Look at the first mention period. If there was a chat, if there should have been women elected then, that would be the time to elect them because this is a woman's problem. But it's significant that they said, listen, you choose seven men, and then they gave the qualifications, men of good reputation, men who have the spirit, and men who have wisdom, and appoint them over this business. And the word appoint there means to give them authority over this uh, particular business. Uh, now, when you take that now, so you've got men selected, and they are appointed and given authority over a particular area of ministry in the church. Now, if you look at First Timothy chapter two, verse twelve, Nathan. First Timothy chapter two and verse twelve says, "But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence." Right, so the amount of authority here, I think, is a key factor, that this is men given the role of authority over a particular area of the ministry. So there's not only men, but the element there is some authority that's given. Paul is very cautious about women being able to have authority over men. But again, notice that this is not over men now. This is over 
what women's problems are. But I want to keep that word authority there uh, as, as, as a matter. The other thing is the word deacon that is used, uh, uh, diaconist that is used in this particular passage, um, is actually used several times uh, in the Bible, eight times in the Gospel, 22 times in the writings of Paul, and uh, the four times it is used um, um, it is used in relation to deacons only. This would be the only exception uh, if they this only refer to deacons. All the other times that word is used in relation to an office is used in relation to the deacon. Um, the reason why I'm saying that, Nathan, is because some people refer to Re- Romans 16.1. Look there for just a moment. Romans 16 and verse 1 says, I commend unto you Phoebe, our sister, which is a servant of the church, which is at Crenicia. Yeah. You see that word servant? That's the same word for deacon. So they said, ah, Phoebe is a deacon. But again, every time Paul uses that word in the Gospels, that word means servant. Eight times it means servant. In Paul's writing, 22 times when Paul used it, 14 times it refers to minister, and two times it refers to civil magistrate. The only time that that word has been translated deacon is today. All the other translations up until today, including the King James Version, New King James Version, the New um, uh, English Translation, Young Little Translation, all the translations that preceded this day, all of them translated that word servant. It's only today that the modern translation has changed that word from servant, which is the normal use of the word to mean deacon. So what has happened is this. The culture has changed the translator's uh, interpretation of the word. They haven't taken the lexical use of the word, which means servant. They are now, because of the culture and the feminist movement and the pushing of women into the ministry, they have now allowed that cultural push to cause them to change that word from servant to deacon. That's why people today are saying that a woman can be a deacon. But uh, for all of these, from the 1611 until now, all the translations had it as servant. Only today, because of the pressure, they have now changed that word to deaconess. Uh, and that is where the culture shapes the interpretation rather than out the lexical word in the lexicon books to help you to interpret the the scriptures. Uh, For example, when the NIV was written in 1984, the first translation, the word was servant. The latest NIV, which is done in 2011, the word is no longer servant. Guess what it is? Deaconess. See? The culture, the pressure of the culture, is like a lot of these modern translations now taking out what they call a gender-free Bible. right? Uh, the pressure of the culture is what is changing the interpreter. And that's what happened with this word deacon. Never was it understood before now to mean deaconess in that passage. But they're now using that. The other uh, thing that I think is important that settles this whole thing, Nathan, is uh, in first. Oh, let me just say this. In Romans 16, verse 1, where um, this, uh, the, what's your lady's name again? Phoebe? Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, Phoebe. Phoebe. When she's mentioned, uh, is a narrative passage. Paul mentions 23 names. He's coming to the end of the passage of, the, of his, his writings and he's giving greetings to these. So, this is a narrative passage. You never build doctrine 
on a narrative passage. So it's not prescriptive. No, right. What you build doctrine is where there is a didactic portion of the Bible that deals with the topic. And where is that portion found? 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8 to 13, where Paul is a didactic, where Paul is teaching now what is a deacon and who should be a deacon. And one of the key uh, verses, uh, Nathan, in that passage is verse 12. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households. That is very, very clear. It's interesting that in uh, where they had the first mentioned period, uh, in Acts chapter 6, seven men are chosen. Now Paul is giving the didactic teaching of who should be deacon, like he does also who should be a pastor. And he's saying clearly that the deacon should be a husband and one wife. So it clearly indicates that a deacon should be a male. And here's another point. The way that we have moved the role of the deacon in the 21st century is not just that they serve tables and involved in the social welfare program in church. They are working with the pastor and they have the authority to preach. When the pastor is not there, he assigns them to preach to do Sunday school teaching. Now, how does that align with Timothy, where Paul says, I suffer not a woman to exert authority? So I would say to the person who asked the question, when you take the first mentioned principle, when you think Paul's principle of 1 Timothy chapter 2 about authority, and then you take Paul's clear teaching on the uh, what a deacon should be and who they should be, it is very, very clear that this is a role that belongs to men. Uh, it is now creeping into the church, just like women preachers crept into the church, not because the Bible endorses it, but because the culture pressures the church to adopt to its, uh, its, its new way of thinking. And I think that's what's happening with the the pushing of pe- women to become deacons today. It's a cultural phenomenon because um, the role that women are now playing so dominant, uh, we're now s- looking at this interpretation as though this is a, a male uh, patriarchal approach to the Bible rather than let the Bible interpret itself. But I would also say to the person again, always let a didactic portion dealing with a subject to be to set the norm norms of what should be, rather than a narrative that is just uh, you don't use a narrative passage to establish doctrine. So if you can do proper hermeneutics, you have to understand that basic principle that there are didactic portions of the Bible that explains clearly what those offices are. And Paul did that for us in in, in First Timothy. Thank you very much to the individual who sent in that question. Very timely in today's day and age and in the modern church. If you have a question, you can call and ask it live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. If you don't want your question to possibly in any stretch of the imagination get traced back to you that even a family member would know that you sent it in, at the beginning of your question, just put anonymous, and we won't even mention the the area code that the question's coming from Antigua or from Serbia or wherever it may be coming from. It'll just be a question that is coming in. Again, if you want to WhatsApp or text your question, send it to 268 728-1454. Again, 268-782-1454. How do we know that God exists is another question 
Well, the the evidence for God's existence is is so clear that the psalmist himself in the book of Psalms 14 verse 1 says, uh, and God himself says, as the fool have said in his heart, you know, God. So any man that finds it difficult to believe in God uh, from what exists, God labels that man a fool, a moron, because the evidence is so overwhelming uh, that when you look at what exists, unless you believe in magic, uh, unless you believe that um, something can just happen out of nothing, and the laws of science, um, in particular, th- three of those laws, I believe, help to support theism and the belief in God. One of the basic laws, Nathan, is the law of cause and effect, that no effect is greater than the cause. So if you see a computer with an effect, you know one thing, whoever made that computer is greater than the computer. because So you can never have, uh, you look at the universe, you look at the creation, whatever is here, that's the effect. The cause has to be greater than what exists. And that's a basic scientific law, uh, the law of cause and effect, and that effect cannot be greater than the cause. Uh, So there must be a first cause. The question is, if there must be a first cause because we see the effect, uh, and whatever created the effect has been greater than the, the, uh, created the effect. That cause has to be greater than the effect. So when we look at the effect, let, let's take man for example. Uh, God has to be greater than man and has to be greater than the universe. So let me just say what the first cause would must look like then. Number one, we know that man has intelligence. The effect cannot be greater than the cause. So we know that God has to be intelligent, and he has to have a superior intelligence. So whatever you believe about the first cause, you must believe an intelligent cause. Why? Because you have an intelligent man. Um, so the universe is um, has an intelligent God, and that means, and the Bible says that that God is omniscient. That means he knows everything. He's not like man limited. He has infinite knowledge. Secondly, we know that man is emotional. The effect cannot be greater than the cause. So it means that God must have emotions as well. And, um, and of course, the noblest emotion that God has is love. So he's not only an intelligent God, but he has to be a God who has emotions, and, of course, he has an infinite degree of those emotions. Thirdly, we know that man has volition. Man has a will. Man can choose. So it also means that this first cause is not only intelligent, he's not only emotional, it means also that he must be volitional, he must be able to act independent, and he must have a will and to exercise that sovereign will. So we're talking about the sovereignty of God. Fourth thing, we know that man is powerful. I mean, man could create the atomic bomb, but the effect cannot be greater than the cause. So it means that whoever this God is, whoever this first cause is, he's not only intelligent, he's not only emotional, not only volitional, but he has to be powerful. And we say that he is omnipotent. That's the biblical term. He's all-powerful. When you look at the sun, this power in the sun, when you look at the stars, look at the atom, look how much power is in the atom. Whoever made the atom to create um, uh, nuclear power, clearly the effect cannot be greater than the cause. He has to have more power than that, according to the law of, of, of cause and effect. The other thing that we know about man is that man is moral. 
man knows right from wrong, etc., etc. So whoever this God is, he has to be a moral God. I mean, he has to be just. He has to be righteous, uh, and of course, he has to have judicial right to exercise judgment. And we know that Christ, God, is a, a moral God. The fifth thing we know about man is that man is relational. That means, again, the effect can be greater than the cause. It means that God has to be really, And that's where the Trinity comes in, Nathan. You can't have eternal love unless you have at least two persons. The Trinity explains how they could be, they could be loved. You can't have love without a, a relationship going on. And that's where the, the doctrine of the Trinity uh, indirectly explains how there could be such a thing as eternal love. And then, of course... Uh, Man is finite. It means that the uh, effect cannot be greater than the cause. It means that God has to be eternal. So whatever um, this first cause is, he must be an eternal, intelligent, emotional, volitional, uh, relational, moral being. Uh, that is what uh, we... So the law of cause and effect uh, helps us to believe and understand that there is uh, a God. Pastor, Sorry. We've got a call on the line. Thank you for calling, and go ahead with your question, please. Good night. Good night, sir. How are you? Fine, thank you. I'm Hi. doing well. Hi. What can we do for you? Yes. Which one? The explanation. Do what? Explanation. On which one? On... Um, Corinthians 3. Corinthians? You mean Revelation 3? My brother William, I'll tell you about Corinthians 3 and yes, and Deuteronomy 21, verse 10 to 15. You have to tell me you would have. Deuteronomy, give me that. Deuteronomy 1, 21? Yeah, from 10 to 15. 10 to 15. Uh-huh. What's the other one? And Revelation chapter 3. I just did that. Oh yeah, I did uh, Revelation chapter three. I did that. I did. As a matter of fact, I spent about thirty minutes on that. <laughs> uh, okay, my question tonight, now I would want to ask, is about Jacob and Esau. Uh huh. When Rebecca overheard Isaac telling Jacob, uh, Esau to go and get go in the bush and hunt for what him, and yeah. then the mother set up Jacob. Yeah. And Jacob tells she like, why did that be the punishment? And she did uh, let, the, let the punishment be over on her. Uh-huh. What really happened to her? Is God really punish her? Or well, I, I, um, she is taken on. She, she, of course, she wants her son to have the, the blessing. The blessing is designed for the firstborn. But yet, the prophecy from the time these two boys were born, that the older would serve the greater, so God already said that Jacob would be the one that would be would have the blessing, and uh, but what happened in a case like that is that the, the problem was how is that going to work? Because according to the laws uh, of those ancient times, the blessing went to the firstborn, but clearly uh, Jacob was the secondborn, Esau was the firstborn. So the mother found herself in a dilemma. She wanted the blessing for her second son. Because the prophecy that was given when the child was born, that he would be the one that would rule the, the elder. And that's where she's trying now to engineer uh, and make it happen. And that's what we do. Now, there's ways that God could have dealt with that and still allow Jacob to have the blessing. For example, Esau could have died an early death. 
God could have removed Esau and the blessing would have fallen on Jacob. Uh, also, it's something that Esau could have done. Later, which he did, he went and he married some Canaanite woman and that would have put him out of the blessing because you also find uh, in the case of uh, Levi and Simeon, they were there, you know, the blessing came to Judah bypass Reuben because Reuben slept with his father's wife and then Levi and Simeon went and committed such an atrocious act against uh, some people in the territory where uh, their sister was ravaged and they went and violently killed all those people and so it went Reuben was lost because the blessing was lost and he was the firstborn because he slept with his father's concubine and then the other two boys committed such murder that uh, they lost the blessing and so it turned to Judah. So it's possible that if they had just waited, Esau going and marrying somebody outside the Jewish race, uh, the blessing would have gone to Jacob. But again, that's when you're trying to engineer to make things happen when you wait on God to let God bring about his plan. So she came up with this plan, this scheme of how to get the blessing, that she'll have Jacob disguise himself, put the the uh, skin on his hand because he was uh, Esau was a very hairy person. His father, who couldn't see well, should have listened to the voice because when he came in, he said, I, you feel like Esau, but it's the voice of Jacob. Yeah. Rather than listening to what he had, the last um, means he had was his ears, not his eyes. Uh, he went and made a poor judgment, and so he gave the blessing. But uh, the mother was trying to get Jacob to do this, and Jacob knew it was wrong. And she said, look, any punishment that's going to be had as a result of this, I will take the punishment for you. Now, we're not told in the Bible uh, if she was actually punished for this. I don't know anywhere in the Bible where it was done. But you can see how by taking on this commitment, uh, Jacob now was emboldened to do what she wanted. By the way, this is a classic case of nepotism of favoritism where you've got the daddy who loves one child you've got the mommy who loves the other and they're competing for the future for each child daddy favors one mommy favors the other and wherever you have nepotism within a home you have confusion the children that they get a rivalry between the kids that should never be uh the same thing happened with uh joseph and his brothers daddy loved jacob J joseph because um he was his, his, his last born basically and he came from his favorite wife and he gave him a coat of colors now if you just give the one of the boys a coat of colors don't give anybody else you are actually stirring up envy and jealousy and that's why the boys eventually um, sold him etc etc so you got to be careful with nepotism but to answer your question we're not told in the bible what punishment was administered to her but uh, it is very clear that she incentivized Jacob to do it, that if there was going to be a blessing, a, a curse or something, that she would take the curse for Jacob, and therefore he went ahead. Now, the Bible records what happened. It doesn't mean that God sanctions what happens. That's what people need to understand, you know. You see something in the Bible, and you feel because of the Bible, it means that this is what God agreed with, no? It's showing you exactly how man, or but God overruled it to bring about his purpose. So there are times when you find in Scripture something that is recorded. Remember, inspiration refers to what is recorded. It doesn't mean that everything that's recorded is, is uh, right. Satan told lies, you're not going to die. That's recorded. doesn't mean that if you disobey God, you're not going to die. It's just a record of what took place at that particular time. But that's the... Yes. Uh, how, how she would have known that he would have to punish Jacob... Well, she, she, she no, no, again, if you remember, these are the patriarchal time where you have a relationship between Jehovah and these patriarchs. 
Okay? God punishes sin. There's no question about that. So she was expecting that if she, if Jacob were to deceive his brother, that there would be some consequences. And certainly there were consequences. Uh, as a matter of fact, after he had gone away and he returned, you remember his brother went to meet him, I think, with 200 men, and he became very, very scared. And then he, you know, he separated and he met God at the Jabbok River and he wrestled with God that night and asked God to bless him. And uh, God blessed him. But that was the, the point of transformation with Jacob, that he realized now that, hey, I'm going to face the consequences. And he wrestled with God until he's so scared because he's coming to meet Jacob. He may think this is time that there's going to be retribution. And he wrestled with God and prayed with God and basically said, God, I want you to bless me. I want you to bless me. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. And God saw the sincerity of his heart. And God blessed him. As a result, when he did meet with uh, his brother Esau, uh, by then, there was the animosity had abated, and certainly there was a calming element uh, of a divine nature that kept uh, Esau from taking vengeance on his brother. So God, um, let me put it this way, it's just like you and I sinning, and then we come to the gravity of it, and we are really broken over it. And God said, okay, I see you're broken. You don't get the consequences because God forgives you and pardons you because he sees how real you were. I think that's something that happened at Jabbok River with Jacob. Uh, he had done wrong, and he was going to be punished. But when God saw his sincerity and his brokenness, uh, God took away his iniquity, and he didn't suffer the consequences. But certainly his mother would have felt that this deception was worthy of God punishing Jacob in some form. She said, if it's going to be punishment, I'll take it upon myself. Okay, I will answer the next question, Deuteronomy chapter 21, next time. I, di I didn't remember that one, but I'll, I'll make sure you answer that question. Thank you very much for your call, Brother Williams, and have a blessed night. Thanks for encouraging others to tune in to That's Truth. Pastor, we have a question that has come in from a listener in Antigua. Why did God allow men in the Old Testament like Jacob to have more than one wife? The New Testament says that a man can only have one wife, and that was not a change from the Old Testament law. So why did God allow polygamy in the Old Testament? Well, look, there's an element of mystery about this. All, all we know, basically, is that God is dealing with man at a, a different stage, at a stage in his, in, in, uh, in his spiritual development. There was no uh, law. There was no Ten Commandments. That came after uh, but clearly, God's plan, if you check Genesis chapter 2 for uh, home and marriage, is one man, one woman in a monogamous relationship, and out of that should come children. That is God's plan. We know that from Genesis. But again, the cultural influences, uh, like they do today, influence people like even Abraham, etc., etc. They were following the laws. Like for example, if a person was married, and um, the person died, the wife died, uh, the, the husband died, the man was supposed to go and marry the woman and give her ch get children to her. They were talking about a stage of development that was influenced by the cultural um, uh, norms of the time. Uh, but in terms of understanding what God's plan was, we've got to go back to Genesis to always understand what was God's original plan. So he permitted it. Uh, it doesn't mean that he endorsed it. It means he permitted it. Uh, just like an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Again, that doesn't mean that God means that if you lose somebody, knock out your eye, you're going to knock out their eyes. It was to mitigate 
you're not going beyond. In other words, if you are going to take revenge, you can only take out the eye. You can't take out the eye and knock off the arm as well. It was designed. And if you compare the, the Hebrew laws with the laws of Hammurabi, which is the uh, laws that uh, existed about the same time, you'll find that the Hebrew laws were far more merciful in mitigating what you could do and what you could not do. So at that stage of man's development, God had to put some controls on what can happen. And again, I I keep telling people, you can't deal with a six-year-old the same way you deal with a 20-year-old person. At that time in, in, in human history, you taught complete paganism, complete um, idolatry. And God is now calling out a people to establish a true faith. And that takes time. It takes working with people who come out of raw paganism. And God tolerated some of these things uh, because you have to work with what you have. Uh, and that's what he did. But it doesn't mean that he endorsed it. No, the mistake that people make, because something was permitted in the Old Testament, they now say that we should have it in the New Testament. That's the argument up for polygamy. Uh, but again, with all the light that we have, God is going to judge you not according to, is going to judge according to how much light you have. And we have not only the Old Testament, we have the New Testament. And remember that Revelation is progressive. God reveals his ultimate purpose in the New Testament. What is the final? Because Revelation is progressive, and we have that information in the New Testament that what God intends uh, in the Gospels, Christ made it very clear it's one man, one woman. Uh, Paul makes it quite clear as well. Uh, you're free to marry in the Lord uh, a husband. Uh, and, and, and so there is the biblical teaching that God's design is for monogamous relation. But he, t- like divorce, God hates divorce, but he tolerated it again. Again, because of the, the, the level of moral, spiritual understanding of the people at that time, he worked with the material he had to work with uh, until he could get all the, 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 the principles uh, instilled in us over a period of time. So you've got to understand that he's dealing with people at an infant stage in their spirituality. And he tolerates certain things that are happening within the custom and the culture of the time. That's not his will. But he permits it and he allows it until he finally shows us exactly this is my total design because people need to be at their stage, need to be able to accept certain things and God has to work. It's like you and your Christian faith. Um, when you were a babe in Christ, uh, there are certain things that you didn't understand, you didn't appreciate. As you get older in the faith, you begin to understand and appreciate things that are much deeper than on the surface. And that's a stage of development. Thank you for sending in that question to the individual from Antigua. If you have a question, we still have 18 minutes left in tonight's episode of That's Truth. You can send in your question via WhatsApp or text message to 268-782-1454. Go ahead and send it quickly so we have plenty of time to answer it. Again, WhatsApp or text 268 728- 782-1454. Or you can call and ask your question live on the air by calling 268-462-7420. You can go to the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse Facebook page, click on the Facebook Live video feed, and comment your question in the comment section on your device. Yeah, the, the, so the law of cause and effect is a scientific law. It's not something that I'm speaking here as an invention. And there's no question that when you look, as I said, Nathan, and the effect, I, I, I have a cup here that you gave me in water. 
it is very clear that somebody made this cup. And it's very clear that this cup is not smarter than the person that made it because this is the effect. So whoever the cause of this is far greater than this. And the same thing when we look at the, look at man. Uh, man is the effect. Whoever made man must be greater than man. That is the cause. And that's a scientific principle. The second thing is the law of uh, thermodynamics, the first law of thermodynamics. We said that basically that the world had a beginning. The, the world is running down, Nathan. It's, that's a scientific law. If it's running down, it, it can't be eternal. It had to have a start. Yeah. So that, again, helps people understand that uh, they must have had uh, a, a, a beginning uh, and uh, it's going to have an end. We eventually will run out of energy. Now, that is, of course, thousands upon thousands of years, so I don't care about it. I'd be gone, right? But the fact is that we know one thing. The universe is running down, and if it's running down... It had to be started up, and so it's running down. It's not something eternal. Those laws are laws that clearly indicate that there has to be a creator, a first cause. And this world did not create itself. It didn't just, something created it. And as a result of that, now if evolution were true, it means the world would be winding up. Because evolution is a progress of growth. But the, the evolution is not true. The world is devolving. It's, it's, it's getting worse and worse and worse. It's deteriorating and deteriorating and losing power, etc., etc. Evolution is the greatest pseudo-scientific myth that has ever been forced in the world that has been accepted by so many intellectuals and smart people. And I think the reason for that, Nathan, is that if you surrender the idea of evolution, you find yourself boxed into responsibility before a personal God who's going to hold you accountable. And modern man wants to live the way he wants to and do the thing he wants to. He doesn't want to be boxed in and be held responsible. He just wants to do what he is. So to do that, you've got to get rid of God. And I think that's where the evolutionary theory has come in. You're listening to That's Truth on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse, a live interactive call-in program. You can call and ask your question live on the air, 268-462-7420, or you can WhatsApp or text your question to 268-782-1454. The other thing I'd like to say, Nathan, if you study the passage in Romans chapter 1, um, we, we, we don't have to look at it in chapter 1, and tw- verse 22 and 23, the Bible explains that atheism is a choice. Man is programmed by God to know there is a God. Man is programmed to God to know right from wrong. There's a moral law within every, every human being. It's like God put a microchip in man that no matter what you do, you know there's a God and you know there's, there's right and wrong. And Paul makes it quite clear that atheism is a de- deliberate choice. It's rooted in human pride, human knowledge, And at the end of it, the problem about God is not mental, it is moral. It's a a heart problem, not a head problem. Uh, And that is where um, the whole issue lies. But the evidence, the abundance of evidence, I remember um, if you check the, the, they've uh, worked out the DNA. And I'm told that there's enough information in the DNA that can fill all the Britannica encyclopedias. And its information is not jumbled, it's sequential, right? Now, that is stunning. And this is an admission not of the layman. This is admission of the scientific community. So why then, to say that there's so much information, how did it just get together? Yeah. 
again, in an organized fashion. It, there is a conspiracy uh, against uh, reason and, and knowledge and, and a conspiracy against evidence. And I think they've come to a position, this is our position, and people now who want to um, change that position are getting pressure from the scientific community to keep on holding on to the evolutionary theory. But there's a great section of scientists who are now talking about intelligent design. Not necessarily Christians, but they've come to realize this could not just have happened. It's against all the laws of probability. There is something here that uh, can't, could never have happened by chance. They're not prepared to go to the point to say there is a personal God that the Bible presents. So they're left in limbo. Uh, we know the answer to that question is that there's a creator. And there's an intelligent creator. Uh, who made all of this, and our purpose is to worship Him and to serve Him. Now, at, during difficult times in our life, there are different things that we may struggle with or contemplate. Is this really true? Pastor, is it possible from your perspective, your understanding of biblical Christianity, for a born-again believer to struggle with the sovereignty of God, the the different somewhat contradictory uh, characteristics of God? I don't have any doubt about that. As a matter of fact, you can go into limbo and have an eclipse of faith. If you read the story of Dr. Harry Ironside, one of the great uh, commentators, I think I got about 14 of his volumes, um, he had a photographic memory. Uh, he, at one time, was going to become a um, Unitarian he had an eclipse of faith and uh, so he went through that period of time but he was brought back to faith in Christ as he studied the scripture he was saved but he came through that a period of great doubt and depression in his life until he started searching the scripture and then he found his faith and again faith comes by hearing here by the word of God that's how you get yourself into the dark area going back to scripture and let the scripture transform your life but there are other people that will tell you that uh, they have doubts about like some people got doubt about their salvation you know whether that person is eternally saved or not doesn't mean those people are not saved well, I don't uh, I don't see how that could mean they don't say that they just interpret the Bible and there are verses in scripture let's be honest that could suggest and you could interpret a particular way um, but that doesn't mean the person is not saved there are other people that would have to uh, God's sovereignty as he controlled everything um, they can have doubts about, about that as well but again the answer when you've got those kind of doubts is to go to the scripture and study the scripture for yourself and see what that particular doctrine is it in scripture or not that has to be settled from Scripture, not just by speculation or what human says. Uh, God's thoughts are higher than our thoughts, and He has given us a body of truth to guide us and meander away through the darkness and through the confusion, through the moments of depression when we can't see things clearly. So you're saying go back to Scripture and not necessarily to a modern author that's explaining it. No, in- uh, okay, I should, should make a greater clarity. Scripture should be a primary source. But, okay. for example, take Josh McDonald's books, Evidence That Demands a Virgin, two, two tremendous volumes. Uh, if I had doubts about the inspiration of the Bible, I would go to that text to help me because he has done far more study than I, I have done or could ever do yeah. and all the research as to why the Bible is the Word of God, etc. Or I might go to Norman Geisler has one on uh, the Bible uh, it's the Word of God. Again, 
He's a great uh, apologist. And God has given to the church men with unique skills and gifts, very, very smart men who are much smarter than me and you, and et cetera, et cetera. But they have devoted their entire lives to trying to answer the, the, the questions that people raise. And they've done all the research for us. Now we can benefit from that because they are part of the body of Christ given to the church for that purpose. So, And there are other, other um, people who are great apologetic writers like Francis Schaeffer, who is now deceased and dead, but he was the greatest apologist we had in the modern century. But now he's gone. But again, his writings are still there. The God who is there escaped from reason. Um... um Try to think of one of the other two, but he has about five or six books that he wrote that are very, very solid and very applicable today. If I was having a point of doubt in my mind, again, he'd be one of the volumes I would pull to reread that book. So, use if I, <laughs> but how, as a listener, do I know what is a good author to turn to and what is an author that's maybe caught up in this woke movement of politically correctness? Well, look, there, there are certain names that, um, again, I don't know the person that might be listening. I don't know if you read Christian books. I don't know how long you've been reading Christian books. I don't know if you're familiar with the great Christian leaders uh, who write a lot of the major uh, books on Christian defense, etc. So it might be difficult. I would suggest that if a person is going to a period of time and they're going to a period of in respect of particular doctrine, find a, a pastor or find a person that you have some measure of confidence in and believe that they're a reliable resource person and uh, seek their counsel. You know, what book, good, good book can I read on this particular subject, etc.? Remember that we're not low rangers, Nathan. That's the purpose of the church. We are meant for relationships, we flourish. In relationships, and that's what the church is there as a body that we can all uh, reflect off on. We can talk and we can get sources of encouragement. So when we're going through those periods of doubt, we can be able to turn to believers, and we're not the embodiment of wisdom. There may be somebody in the church who far have more wisdom in a particular area. We turn to that person. Do you know of any lit- any literature or any author who may be able to help me? I'm going through this period. And here's another thing, Nathan. When people are going through those kind of things, we got to be careful that we don't scorn them. Because they really, really have a problem, right? And because the guy said, I'm having a doubt about that, we don't label him as a, an apostate or uh, an unbeliever. He's struggling, and we need to assist him to get out of that, yeah. Codrington, thank you for calling, and go ahead very quickly with your question. We are almost out of time for tonight. I realize that uh, maybe you'll have to finish it next week. No, I'll ask this question. Go ahead. When Adam and when Cain and Adam and Eve did sin, and when God took them in the Bible, didn't he let down some law what going to happen to them and the serpent, which is called the devil? Because I heard you say that how there's no law was in the beginning with some people. Okay. Alright, my, my response to that is that there was no written law. That's what that's what I was saying. Clearly the commandment to Adam not to eat the tree was a law in the sense that it was a command. Uh, so that's what I meant. There was no written law. The, 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 the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Mo- books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, were written by Moses. And Moses came centuries after these guys, almost 4,000 years after, basically. So there was no written document, no written authority. Uh, it was through oral tradition handed on by word of mouth. Uh, and this was kept uh, handed on and handed on hand, until Moses finally uh, wrote them down. And we have the, 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 the law, which is called the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. That's what I meant. But in case of Cain 
and uh, and and Eve. Uh, God punished man. He punished Eve who sinned, and he punished the serpent. And the thing about it, he also punished the earth uh, as well. Man brought the curse upon the earth. So he punished individuals. In the case of Cain, when Cain killed his brother, uh, Cain said, you know, if whoever finds me can kill me. And, and God, in the mercy to Cain, said, no, no, I'm going to put a mark on you that anybody see you rather than take vengeance. I will show you mercy. And, of course, the reason why God showed mercy is always with the expectation that we would repent. Remember in, in Peter, men would come saying, you know, we heard of the Lord coming and uh, heard that for the time we were old, young. And, you know, and the, the, Peter says, you know, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some men come slack, but is well, long-suffering towards, not willing that any should perish. So the delay is an opportunity for a person to repent. And, put, and that's the same thing with Cain. He had done wrong. He should have been killed. But God in his mercy uh, showed him mercy and Cain was allowed to continue his existence. But all of that should have caused, it's like me worthy of death. And a judge says to me, you should go to the gallows, but in my great mercy, I will pardon you. All of my life from then on, I should be grateful to that person that showed me mercy and grace. And that is what I think was intended in the case of Cain. But, of course, he went away from the Lord. The other thing is, he could have broken down right there before God and said, I was wrong, I shouldn't have done it, I shouldn't have said I didn't know where my brother was. And, and, and there's no person who has ever repented with brokenness and sincerity that God has not received. The Bible says, let the unrighteous man forsake his thoughts and the, uh, the sinner, his, his works or deeds, and let them return to the Lord and he will abundantly pardon. We have a loving, caring God that loves man and only wants man to repent and be returned to a relationship. God's strange work is judgment. That's his strange work. His normal work is love and compassion and long-suffering towards us. As we wrap up this episode, Pastor, we've talked about what it means to have a right relationship with Jesus, with God. For the listener who says, Pastor Murphy, I'm just starting out on this Christian journey. How do you encourage, what should I focus on in order to grow? I will tell you this. I wish somebody had told me this many years ago when I first started out. But if I were to start over again, there are two things I would really do. The first one would be I would concentrate on prayer. I would really, with all my heart, uh, make sure that prayer become, became a regular part of my life as a new believer. I would begin the day with prayer, and I would end the day with prayer. And that would become a habit with me uh, that I would carry through. If you don't develop that habit early in a Christian life, it's going to be struggle throughout your life. I don't care how old you get, it remains a struggle. That should be a discipline that is created. The other thing would be a daily reading of the Word, and I would start the day with the Word, and I would end the day with the Word. Again, if you can get prayer and the Word as a regular part of your life, you're looking for great transformation and growth and development and maturity in the Christian life. Those are central, core uh, disciplines for success in the Christian life. In the last 20 seconds, what particular books of the Bible would you encourage someone to begin reading as a new believer? 
Most people recommend you begin with the Gospel of John. Uh, that is a foundational book. Um, I would probably suggest that as well. But I also think that you could read a chapter in the New Testament and a chapter in the New. Start with Genesis and start with John and read those chapters together parallel. Thank you for joining us for today's program. We pray that the Holy Spirit uses the truths shared from God's Word to strengthen your faith. Now you've heard it. That's truth. Thanks for listening. Remember, you can hear more answers to life's questions on That's Truth, Tuesday at 7.30 p.m. on the Caribbean Radio Lighthouse. If you're in Antigua, you can listen at 92.3 MHz FM. If you're in the Caribbean, you can listen at 1160 kilohertz AM or listen online at www.radiolighthouse.org from anywhere in the world. Or you can subscribe to this podcast. Looking forward to having you join us next time.